See, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, it's a lot of power. It's living inside. Everywhere we go, the power of the living God is with you. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter if I'm in another country and I'm in government offices or I'm in, in front of political leaders or business leaders. Wherever I go, I am taking the very presence of God, the very power that raised him from the dead, and every place I go now is an opportunity for God to work because I'm carrying his presence in. There are no idle places for a Christian because every place we walk, we're carrying that same power. In other words, that power is greater than anything you're facing. When you begin to realize this, it shifts things and shifts our understanding. Hi, everybody. Okay, try to get over the fact that we're the parents of your pastor. Um, because, you know, God doesn't make mistakes, and he knew this was on the calendar long before we did. And God has a word today. And so I'm, what, what I'm going to do before Pastor Mike preaches is just kind of update you on what's going on with us. This church does support us, and uh, just as much in prayer uh, as any other way. In fact, I've said for years, I'd rather have 100 minutes of your prayers for us than 100 of your dollars. And my husband is quick to say, but we'll take both. And so um, prayer really does make a difference. Uh, it really, really does. And so something happened on November 15th of last year. A very significant uh, event happened on the globe, on this earth. For the first time, the population passed 8 billion people. 8 billion people. So if you ask us why we do what we do, out of that 8 billion people, there are still 2.5 to 3 billion who have no way of even hearing about Jesus. They live um, primarily in Muslim countries. It's illegal to go as a missionary there. There are a lot of closed doors in the world that keep Jesus out, but Jesus is bigger than a closed door, isn't he? Um, and so we continue to look for ways to take Jesus to the world. Um, the primary function of the School of Global Leadership is to raise up uh, full-time missionaries, uh, we certainly take people on missions trips, and we have people come for shorter times that never become a vocational missionary, but we really want to raise up an army of people who will go, and they will stay until Jesus says it's time for you to do something else. So during COVID, uh, in case you didn't know, uh, the world changed quite a bit. In fact, it's really still changed and we're still working uh, on some of those things. I was thinking of a scripture in 2 Chronicles 20. King Jehoshaphat was uh, facing an impossible situation, and he made this comment. He said, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I don't know if you found yourself saying that ever during COVID. Like, I don't know what to do here. What, what am I supposed to do? Long story short, we couldn't do what we normally do during COVID. We got locked out of Trinidad. But... When we sat down and looked at each other one day and we said, we know what we can't do, but what can we do? Then we began shifting some things in the way we do it. A lot of our academics now are online. Uh, we were told by someone before we ever went to Trinidad, don't dummy down missions. And I've never forgotten that. So we have academics that we take them through. Um, in fact, we helped write a missions course during COVID. That's one of the things that we were able to do for a Bible college here in town. And uh, we take them through academics, we take them through on-the-ground training, and they either come to Trinidad now for a while, or we take them to another country, because one of the shifts 
was that other countries were asking us to come, and we thought, well, we can't just do that, Mike and Pam, because we have responsibilities. What, how do we do this? So we just take people with us. So we have trained missionaries in Africa now and in Mexico as well as Trinidad, and we keep walking through the doors that God opens. So that's kind of what we're doing right now. We just came from Mexico before we came to Iowa, and let me just tell you as I close, our very first international missions trip, and we were thrilled. We took Trinidadians, and we had people from the U.S., and we had people in Mexico joined us for 10 days in Mexico to make Jesus look good to the Mexican people. Is that awesome? You know, one of my favorite scriptures in Revelation has to do with all of the nations and tongues and tribes gathered around the throne. So I feel like we had a little taste of heaven here on earth when we brought three countries together to tell Mexico about Jesus. So we hope to do that again. Uh, we have many Trinidadians saying they want to go on a trip with us. And so we're just saying, Lord, open up whatever doors you choose to open and we'll go. So, yeah, we are very busy. But in the middle of that, you know, this grandma says, uh-huh, if you need help, I'm there. And so we're having a lot of fun. Yes, it's work. So pray for, pray for the strength of grandma and grandpa this week. But it's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So living outside the U.S., we often uh, are not current on the, the latest news. So when we were with our other son and daughter-in-law, um, she said one night that she wanted to watch um, basketball. And I'm thinking, she is not a sports person. And she said she wanted to watch Iowa basketball, but she is living in Nebraska. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? And I think, well, she was from Iowa, so she's like that. Then she said, it's Iowa women's basketball. And I'm saying, what? She says, no, you have to watch this. This girl's amazing. And so she was definitely talking about Caitlin Clark. And um, she knew all the stats. She knew about 1,000 points and 300 assists in one season. And from that night in the next game, she set the record for NCAA tournament in scoring. Amazing, amazing. It was interesting that there's people, I, I read someone who had never watched a woman's basketball game ever, and they watched. So it reminds me of those who um, are sports fans, but really they follow teams when the team's going well, those kind of fair weather fans. But then there's those, it doesn't matter whether the team's doing well or not, they're committed to their team. There may be a few of you like that. Um, my son, if you've never heard, is a Nebraska fan, and Nebraska football fan. So I have to tell you how this developed, because I lived seven very formative years in Nebraska. And when I was, uh, and you can't be in Nebraska without being in this football culture. It's, it's, it's everywhere. In fact, from 1962 uh, to today, every home game has been sold out. And this is what people do. They think about it all year long. And I grew up in this era, in this uh, environment. And when I was in junior high, I was 10 blocks from the stadium. And my friends and I 
would listen to the first quarter of the game on the radio, and then we would walk to the stadium because in those days they would open up the gates at halftime and you could just walk in. So I want you to know Nebraska's first two national championships, 70-71, I was there for every single home game. Didn't pay for a ticket, I just walked in. But, so I saw Heisman Trophy winner Johnny Rogers in person. I walked out on the AstroTurf, one of the first AstroTurfs. This was amazing for a kid. It had an impression on me. Watching every home game for two national championships, I mean, that gets in your blood. And so I was part of this Nebraska culture. In fact, in Nebraska, everyone's a Nebraska fan. If they're not, they kind of just expect that someday you'll move away. No, just kidding. They, they don't really feel that. Um, but then from that moment on, it's just part of, who you're, of your life. And uh, the three national championships, undefeated seasons that came later, and it's just what you do. Where are you going to watch the bowl game from? And Jordan was raised in this type of an environment. There's something about events and situations that capture our heart. And it's not just a memory that we remember something, but it's something which really, it, it really changes how we live and what we do. So whether I say anything about it or not, all my life, I follow Nebraska. My life was altered back then. This is the Sunday after Easter. Uh, you know, there, what's interesting to me through all my years is that there are so many people that they, they may, maybe only come Christmas and Easter. Now, there's less of those, but they would come. There's people who believe the story of the resurrection, but it hasn't changed anything about their life. It's like they believe the facts about it, but it hasn't gotten into their heart. And I think they're missing the whole point. Because the whole point is that the resurrection changes something about how you live. Because when you understand it, then suddenly you're beginning to live with purpose. That's really what happened with the early church. Because if you think of Easter week, that last week before the resurrection, Jesus had had an amazing time with these disciples, three and a half years. And with these disciples, they had been with him when, just shortly before this, Lazarus was raised from the dead. That's a phenomenal experience. I have never been with somebody who was raised from the dead. I have prayed with people and been with people who were moments away from death and lived. I have prayed for lots of people in those type of situations. I've held the hands of people when they died, but I've never been with somebody who's been dead for three or four days and come back to life. I think... I'd be talking about that the rest of my life. So these disciples experience that, the triumphal entry. On Thursday, they have Passover with Jesus, and he changes it. It becomes now what we call communion because it was that last supper with his disciples. After this, they go out, and that's where Jesus is arrested. And what's interesting to me is these disciples who were the hand-picked ones to carry on the message, they all deserted Jesus. They all deserted him. You see, Peter was the one who just shortly before this, Jesus said, 
Who do people say that I am? And he discussed that, and then he says, well, who do you say I am? Well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. He identified who you are, and Jesus agreed with him. and says, upon this, I'm going to build my church. And then Peter denied him three times. Every disciple deserted Jesus. And yet 50 days later, 50 days later, this same Peter gets up and preaches a sermon and 3,000 people are saved. The same guy that deserted him three times or denied him three times. The same one, the same disciples who deserted Jesus were all present and something happened in that 50 days. Something happened and from that moment on, Everything was different about them. You never find them again denying him. In fact, watch this up on the screen. These same 12 disciples, Andrew was crucified. Bartholomew was beaten and then crucified. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned to death. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded. That doesn't sound like fun. John, who was boiled in oil, that didn't work. And so they exiled him. How does that not work? How does that not work? I think somebody lost their job that day. Judas, not Iscariot, the other one, he was stoned to death. Matthew was stoned to death. Peter was crucified upside down. He felt unworthy to be crucified the same way Jesus was. They turned the cross upside down. Wow. Um, Philip was crucified, Simon was crucified, Thomas was stoned to death, and Matthias, the one who replaced uh, Judas, was stoned to death. So how do you go from deserting Jesus, from denying him, to within 50 days, starting to live a life that now you're willing to give your life up? It all comes back to Easter. It comes back to Easter. This was not simply an event. Yeah, we remember that event that happened, but this Easter event, this resurrection, literally transformed them. Something shifted on the inside in these disciples. And as it shifted on the inside, they were never the same. Take a look at this verse that's on the screen. Colossians 3, 1 to 3. This is the, uh, the Apostle Paul speaking. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts, you've been raised with him. So there's identity with what he was talking about. Everything G Paul and the others talk about, it's really built around this resurrection. You've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Change your perspective. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, the amazing thing to me is that in Christianity, this is what really happened. It was not an issue of people embracing a belief system. It wasn't like that. It wasn't that they believed, yes, Jesus raised from the dead, but they believed something that shifted on the inside and they were never the same. 
There was nothing about me or my family that would indicate I would be a sports fan. But something shifted in me. Something shifted in me when I went from agreeing and believing the events of Jesus' life and the event of Easter, and it got a hold of my heart. Something shifted on the, on the inside. So the transformation was real. The transformation was dramatic. The first 300 years of the church, listen to this. The first 300 years of the church, the church grew. The first 300 years. Officially, Christianity was an illegal and a depraved religion. That's what the word in Latin, the word for that was used to describe Christianity, it was an illegal religion and a depraved religion. So it was not legal to be a Christian, but it grew. There were no buildings until about 213 AD, but the church grew. How do you grow without a building? The church grew. There were two worldwide pandemics during the first 300 years, and the church grew. There were two major persecutions, continual persecution, but two worldwide persecutions of Christians, intentionally pointed at Christians, where they were torturing and killing Christians, but the church grew. There was no mass media. There were no public crusades. There was no big name public evangelist after the Apostle Paul. No other big name person after the Apostle Paul. And the church grew. See, Christianity spread through humble, ordinary believers, and they were living primarily in big cities. But what happened is they're living in these big cities close to other people, and people saw how they lived, and it had an impact on them. There's many things I can tell you about the resurrection, how it affects our life. I want to share just three things today. And these three things, I want you to see what it really does inside of us, because I believe that Jesus is interested in more than you believing the facts, more than you simply coming to church, but there ought to be something that changes how we live and how we believe. The very first thing is the source of our identity, the source of our identity. Look at Romans, the eighth chapter, uh, starting at verse 14. This is Romans 8. The Apostle Paul's talking here. He says this, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Say children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you are in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received um, uh, brought, brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So not only does it say that we're children, but it says literally we've been adopted into God's family, but there's something inside of us that calls out Abba Father, Daddy God. There's this understanding there. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. In fact, I noticed this first when I was a teenager on one of my first missions trips. I didn't speak the language where we were, there were Christians, they were worshiping. I could tell they were worshiping the same Jesus I was. I could tell there was something on the inside that said, 
They're worshiping by Jesus. There's something on the inside that says we're related. Verse 17 says, Now if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. So the very first thing that happens with the transformation that comes because of the resurrection is relationship with God, that we are now family. Um, I don't know if you have seen people who pray and desperation, they may know that there's a God up there. And sometimes they look and say, you know, if you're up there, if you can hear me, uh, they come up, they throw a prayer up, hope it's heard. But there's a difference when you are family. And when the resurrection touches our lives, it produces a change. Nobody has to tell you, you know you're connected to God. You know you're connected. You're part of the family now. Now, one of the amazing things to me is that we are not just family, but we're heirs. We have an inheritance. Uh, some of us, some of us, especially if we're missionaries, we don't have as much of an inheritance to leave the kids. Uh, but we have an inheritance. Now, who's this inheritance? This inheritance comes from God the Father. Can you think about that for just a minute? Sometimes we talk about having a rich uncle or something like that. I'm telling you, your daddy, your daddy God, he is rich. He's got it all. And who's the inheritance? It's coming to you. What's amazing is that Scripture also tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. That's wild to me, that Jesus is not ashamed to have me part of the family. Some of you have family members that I know you don't have the option, but if you could, they would be in a different family, but Jesus doesn't think that way about you. Isn't that amazing? He's not ashamed to call you a brother. So we have this relationship with God, and we're called children. He's our Father. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father. We have relationship with Him. We have inheritance. Jesus isn't ashamed of you. He isn't ashamed of me. This resurrection brings us into relationship with God. And did you know one of the first things that happened in the first 300 years of the church in the Roman Empire when it was illegal to be a Christian they had never heard the kind of teaching where they refer to God as our Father. It's a foreign concept. With all the gods, with whatever people believed in the Roman Empire, they had never heard a personal relationship with God. And the idea of God being our Father fascinated people when they heard it to realize that there is a personal God and you can be in relationship with him, it was a radical idea. It was so radical it was, it, that it liberated people in that era. And they were captive with a fatalistic type of society and a worldview. And this idea that there's a personal God and you can be in re relationship with him freed them 
They'd never heard this type of concept. I, um, I, I really believe that God leads our steps and directs our steps, and so I like to find God at work outside of services. That's where he, I believe he, he's working all the time. And so one of the places that I intentionally look for him is places that no one ever would, no one would expect God to work. And so I often look for food vendors, and it's amazing how conversations start as they're fixing food for you. And in Trinidad, one of the places that I find is, is uh, places that, that cook uh, gyros. That's what they call it down there, these lamb gyros. So I found this place as I was driving by, and I looked at it, and it sounded a little odd to me because almost all the, the, the gyro places in Trinidad are Syrians. But this one has a name, and I could tell they were from India. The name was from India. And I was curious. I stopped and started talking. And the guy goes, yeah, I'm, I'm from India. He said, but we're Muslim. So this is a devout Muslim from India living in Trinidad, and I'm a Christian missionary, and he's fascinated. He wants to talk to me. He wants to figure, so while he is cooking the food, we're starting this conversation. He thinks it's amazing. He wants to know why I'm there. I want to know why he's there. This starts relationship. During Ramadan, I ask him the question, so when you pray, what do you pray for? And he said, well, when I first came, I was praying for finances, but now I'm just praying for God's will for my life. I said, are you serious? That's what I'm praying for your life. Because it is. I'm praying for God's will for his life. He came unglued. He'd never heard anything like this. He came out behind his stand. He gives me a bear hug and says, you're my best friend. All because I said I'm praying for God's will for his life. I'm with him another day during Ramadan, and I say, so when, when you pray, does God talk to you? He laughed at me. He says, I talk to you, you talk to me, but God doesn't talk to me. I said, you know what? I'm praying for God to speak to you in dreams and visions. He couldn't believe it. He gave me a fist bump. He says, I have got to come to your church. This devout Muslim didn't even have a concept that it was possible for God to speak to him. And I want you to know that's what happened in that first 300 years. People were discovering that a real God a personal God can have a relationship, and you can even call him our father, my father, and he hears you. I want you to know that today, there's no answers in the world. Politicians don't have answers. You know that. It doesn't matter what your, religious, your political beliefs are. There's, politicians don't have answers. Religions don't have answers. You could talk to people everywhere. What are we doing with the economy, gas prices, food prices? What are we doing? And you go down the line. Anything you want to talk about, there's no answers. Except with you and me. Because we're connected to the king of the universe. He's daddy God. And regardless of what we go through, he's able to make crooked paths straight for us. This is a message that people are looking for today. I can tell you, they're looking for answers. They're not looking for religion. They're not looking for you to convince them they're sinners. They're looking for hope. And people that have hope, that's contagious. That's why the church grew. 
Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then approach uh, God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's interesting that it said, let us come with confidence. You see, we normally would think of coming before God and we feel unworthy to come before him or we would feel like, uh, is he gonna really let me in? But he says, come right into the very throne room of God. Walk in with boldness and confidence. Right into the throne room of God. Why? Because you're family. Our daughter is adopted. That's Jordan's uh, younger daughter. Um, sister, excuse me, sister. Our daughter, his sister. So um, I remember one time we were pastoring and she took her good friend and went to my office. I wasn't there. She walked right in. Her friend was uh, shocked. You just walked into pastor's office. And she said, no, I didn't. It's my dad's office. She went and sat in my desk, at my desk. And her friend says, you're sitting in pastor's desk. And she said, no, I'm not. It's my dad's desk. She knew where some candy, some sweets were. She opened a drawer to get those out. Her friend is saying, you're taking pastor's candy. She says, no, I'm not. It's my dad's candy. Then she's thirsty. She knows another drawer where there's some change. She gets some money because she's going to go buy a drink. And her friend is coming unglued. You're taking pastor's money. And she said, no, I'm not. It's my dad's. When you understand relationship, you come boldly into the presence of God because the resurrection has shifted something on the inside. It's changed your identity. You're a child of the king. Somebody say amen. So the second thing that I really find that happens due to the resurrection is the source of our strength. I like Romans 8.11, and it says this, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, I remember when I first got this concept, I just stopped. I couldn't even get through the rest of the verse. I said, what? The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you? I'm thinking, that's a lot of power. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and it's living in me? See, I grew up feeling like I was, um, I was afraid, I was scared. I was scared for people to know I was a Christian. I, I, was, I, I was terrified at talking to somebody about Jesus. The most I could ever think of doing was inviting somebody to come to church and that was usually somebody who had already been once because I thought they would never want to respond to this invitation. When I began to understand that inside me resides the power that raised Jesus from the dead, something shifted. Something shifted inside of me. See, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, it's a lot of power. It's living inside. Everywhere we go, the power of the living God is with you. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter if I'm in another country and I'm in government offices or I'm in, in front of political leaders or business leaders. Wherever I go, I am taking the very presence of God, the very power that raised him from the dead, and every place I go now is an opportunity for God to work because I'm carrying his presence in. There are no idle places for a Christian because every place we walk, we're carrying that same power. In other words, that power is greater than anything you're facing. When you begin to realize this, it shifts things and shifts our understanding. 
Second Corinthians 12 puts it this way. The apostle Paul said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast about more gladly about my weaknesses. What? Who does that? You and I both know our weaknesses, but when we're doing a resume, we conveniently find a way to not include those weaknesses. You don't lead with your weaknesses, but you have them buried somewhere. And the person that you are trying to uh, impress so they will hire you, they have to hunt for your weaknesses. The Apostle Paul says, I celebrate, I glory in them. That's a crazy concept to us, even in the church. And he says, so that Christ's power may rest on me. This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. See, we're raised in society that it's what you do and how well you do it and the grades and how you're evaluated and your performance and all of this. And we never lead with those weaknesses. But when it comes to how the resurrection changes us, it's no, no, no longer really about us because it's his strength that flows through us. He says, it's not you anyway. That's why in, in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, he says he chose the weak to confound the wise. Uh, why would he do that? I told God many times in my early years pastoring, I said, you're the one that picked me. <laughs> you knew what you were getting when you chose me. Of course he did. But he wasn't picking me for my skills. He was picking me because he was looking for a vessel he could flow through. That's why that you can find children pray powerful prayers. They haven't been trained. They just believe that when they pray, Daddy God is going to hear them. So the Apostle Paul says, in my weakness, that's really where I'm strong because his power flows through us. So it takes a change in thinking, but we realize that resurrection brought a, a change in the source of strength in my life. But you see, really what it says to us now is we have a built-in advantage. See, God thinks outside the box. He thinks differently than anyone else thinks. He's outside the box. Isaiah says his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. So when you have the power of the resurrection that has changed your life, you have an unfair advantage because you've got the king of the universe on your side. He's thinking in ways you don't think, whether it's in business or life or family. He's thinking in different ways. Ephesians 3.20 says that he can do more than we could ask or imagine. That means he, God can do more than you can think up and he can do more than you can pray for. He's capable of doing more than your prayers. That's pretty good. I like that. I like that. Do you realize what he's saying? If you limit me to only your prayers and the options you can come up with, you're really limiting things. I've got so many more options you haven't even thought of. And that's what God does. That's the advantage that he gives us. He can do so much more. He does what we cannot do. And God takes what we're able to do to another level. And he can open doors and opportunities that don't even exist. That's what the apostle, that's what Abraham 
uh, it was described about him in Romans 4. It said that he believed that God could raise the dead or he could speak into existence something that wasn't there. That's pretty good faith. He had this understanding that his source was really with God. So the Christians in the Roman Empire, this is some of the things they did. Uh, They served meals to those who were in need. This impressed people, that they would serve meals to needy people. I, when I was reading about that, it reminds me of the, of the food you guys hand out to families. 130 families a week, representing probably 500 people a week. That's crazy. Do you know, as uh, I helped Tony a week ago um, pray for people in their cars, and I went by, some of these people, they have no interest in God. It's clear. There's no interest in God. Yeah, but you're getting into their life, the back door, through serving meals. That's what happened with the early church. They got in the back door. They're saying, why are these people doing this? But we're expressing the love of God by doing that. They also showed hospitality to those in need. When they found people with physical needs, they began meeting the physical needs. They showed hospitality during the pandemics when people would flee the city so they wouldn't get sick. The Christians were in the cities so they could minister to those. And this hospitality was recognized and the first hospitals came out of that hospitality they showed ministering to the needs. You see that, that, that the way these Christians lived was so changed by the resurrection that it touched people that they were living with. They didn't have to be obnoxious and do all these religious things. They just had to live their life and the love of Christ was shining through. And people said, there's something different with you. And they responded to it. When you begin to look at what God does and the power he has placed in us and the options that he has for us, uh, it really gives us an advantage we don't normally have. I remember I was pastoring a church, the last church we pastored before we became missionaries, and our bank announced that they were going to do something special, and they were going to give out free money, uh, grants. I've never heard of a bank giving free money. It caught my attention. Well, my church board said, listen, we got to have a van, because our van is, too, is old, you know. But the grant requirement said no vehicles. Now, I told them that. They said, listen, we don't care. We have to have a, a, a vehicle. You have to write a grant for this. I remember on the last day, I'm sitting at home, in my office at home, and it's 30 minutes before the deadline. And God said to me, write a grant for new commercial freezers and refrigerators, and I want you to start a ministry feeding families in need. I said, what? I said, I haven't even talked to the board about that. He says, I want you to write this grant. I thought it was so crazy. And I'm at home. I didn't have a way to do it properly. You're supposed to print these things up, you know, and do it all proper. I had no pictures of what I was getting. I had no quotes or anything. And then, on top of all the embarrassment, I didn't have a stapler. I walk into the bank to give them this proposal. I said, do you have a stapler? (laughs) Do you realize how embarrassed I felt in this moment? Not only was I embarrassed that I'm turning in this kind of a grant proposal, I don't even have a stapler. 
I gave it to him, and I sheepishly walked out. Two weeks later, there's a, a lady in our church who's part of the bank, and she said, uh, you know, the, the board at the bank talked to me and said, uh, what is this you're going to be doing in feeding these families? She knew nothing about it. I hadn't told anybody. I was still too embarrassed about it. And I said, well, this is what I, I believe we're supposed to do. And she goes back two weeks later, we have a check for $10,000 to go buy commercial equipment. We started feeding so many families. It was amazing. It didn't come out of our thinking. It didn't come out of a board meeting, but rather the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead living in us. God brought options we hadn't even thought of, and that's what he wants to do in your life and mine. I can tell you this, the same church, we were turning a church around that was in a desperate situation. It was really desperate. So in that process, there were financial issues as we kept moving closer to where we needed to be. There was, it was desperate. The biggest giving in a church is often Christmas time, right before the end of the year. Sometimes it's because of, of tax deductions. But it's the end of the year. Sometimes people are just generous around that time. And we have a lot of bills that have to be paid. And, and I'm thinking, well, we got December here. We're going to have our biggest offerings. And do you know that year, God spoke to me and said, all of your bills are going to be paid by the first of the year. And then we had three Sundays, we had ice storms, and had to cancel services. So we had one service in December. I'm thinking, so God, you said all the bills are going to be paid by the end of the year, and we've had one service. I mean, what's going on? And I was gone for a few days, and I remember coming back I told my secretary to get a hold of me as soon as, the, as soon as the money came in. I'm speaking by faith, you know, and I come back and I hadn't heard. I, I walk into the office and I'm ready to say to her, I didn't hear you say anything to me. She says, by the way, I just wanted you to know that somebody gave a large check and they told us, would you hold it until I transfer money? And we just got notice from them and the money is released and it was exactly enough to pay every bill we had. And that day started a turnaround in that church. Never again did we struggle that way. That didn't come from us, but rather the Spirit of God was doing something that we didn't know. In your own family, your own life, your businesses, when you allow the power of the resurrection to change you from the inside, he's able to do things because he thinks in ways we don't think. There's one last thing I'd like to share, and that is that this power of the resurrection becomes the source of our destiny. 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8 says this, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, and I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So he's wrestling with this issue. He's saying, well, you know, I know that as long as I am here, I'm not with him, and I'd rather be with him and not here, but right now I'm here. And so we live by faith because we know we are going to be there and live with him. And he's really saying, when we leave this body, we're present with God. And this is a foundational principle 
that people who have experienced the transformation of the resurrection have because they suddenly know what's going to happen when they die. The Apostle Paul said in another place, our citizenship is in heaven. We're just visiting. Now, regardless of what country I am in the world, my passport still says USA. It's still fun to come through immigration and have someone say, welcome home. There's going to be a day, there's going to be a day when I enter heaven and they say, welcome home. Right now, it's set because the power of the resurrection has touched me. The source of my destiny has been established. You see, when you look around the world, regardless of what religious system people have, Christianity is the only one that has an understanding and a guarantee of what's happening when you die. I actually took some missionaries from another religion to lunch one day. That was, that was fun. I've done it a couple times. I took them to lunch. I said, share with me anything you want to share with me. And they wanted to be viewed as regular Christians like us. And so I just said, share with me anything you want to share. And they just shared and shared and shared. And they come to the end. And the guy says to me this. He's looking me in the eyes. And he says, and after I have lived my life, I hope I've done enough good to outweigh the bad so that I can go to heaven. And I said, you hope? And I began to talk about how the Apostle Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. That for a believer who's been touched by the resurrection, we know what's happening. To be absent from the body is to be present with him. He, this man, had no concept. He'd never heard of this. This is foreign to him. Everything he'd ever been taught was, you work and work and work, and if you've done enough, you might get to heaven. Muhammad Ali, greatest boxer of all time, and an incredible humanitarian, one of the last things he said was this, I hope I've done enough good to outweigh the bad. People come to the end of their life, they don't know what's going to happen. Even those who believe there's nothing, the people that have an understanding of what happens is us, those who have been touched by the resurrection. Some people have ideas, but there's no certainty. And we're the ones that have the hope of eternity, the hope of this destiny that God has given us. So the Apostle Paul tells us our citizenship is in heaven. He tells us that our eternity will be with God. So there's a man who accepted Jesus. He's one of my friends. He had been a politician. He had been a business owner. He had been a union boss, and by his own definition, he wasn't a very good man. Um, if you can think of the negative things you would think about a union boss, he would say that was him. And one day, a friend invited him to come to church, and the friend did not show up. If you invite someone to church, you ought to be there. He came by himself, walked in. He sat right about over there, right in front of Tim, and... Um, that by himself the whole time, partway through the service, he started weeping like a baby. He did not even respond to an altar call, didn't come up to the front, 
didn't publicly pray a sinner's prayer, but sitting where he was sitting in the middle of service, something transformed this man. He was never the same. In fact, the next day he said to me, he said, you know, um, there's a lot of things I do and decisions I make, and I just got to know if this is okay with God. And he started calling me daily, either to come see him or to ask on the phone, do you think God would be okay with me doing this? Because something changed. He wasn't comfortable with the way he had done things. He started tithing. He started paying 10% of his money to God. He'd never done this before. I have never seen anyone do this. But on his checks, he would write a check. So that dates him a little bit. He would write a check. And in the memo line of the check, he would write, to God with love. Who does that? Something shifted in this man. He understood there's relationship with God, that he's family, that this isn't a distant thing. Hey, God, where are you? He knew he had relationship. It shifted the way he lived because now he's looking for doing things in a way that honors God. And when, he didn't know, but when he was close to the end of his life, in the last two to three weeks, all he could talk about was heaven. I don't know if he'd ever actually heard a sermon on heaven. He's probably heard things, but all he could do was talk about heaven. He talked about what it was going to be like. He talked about being there and experiencing. All he could talk about for two weeks was heaven. There's something that shifts inside somebody who's been touched by the resurrection. I like some of these saints, especially if they've been a Christian a long time, because when they come to the end of their life, there's no question. I sat with a lady an hour before she died. She's rocking in a rocker, and she just said, I just want to go home. She was in her apartment. She's talking about up there. Nobody had to tell her or teach her or convince her, but this power of the resurrection transformed her, and the source of her destiny was settled. You know, I, I like having big Easter services. I like some of the songs we sang last week, and I can tell you, some of the, there's at least two of the songs that we were probably one of the only churches that sang those songs. I mean, who sings Death to the Devil, you know? <laughs> uh, but I don't want it to be an experience. I don't want it to be something we just think back on, but I want the power of the resurrection to transform me so I live differently from now on. That's the whole point. Nobody's asking you to come be part of services, but they're asking you to have an encounter with a living Jesus. So the power of the resurrection changes you from the inside out. That's what it's about. That's why we do what we do. That's why my wife and I go to other countries because he's transformed us. And there's nothing like seeing people light up when they understand it for the first time. We're going to pray in just a minute, and we're going to pray two ways. The very first thing, worship team can come and, and get ready. The, the very first thing we're going to pray is for those of you who've, who've already made a decision to follow Jesus, uh, I, I want you to be transformed by this resurrection power. I don't want you just to be somebody that comes to church, 
but I want God to transform you from the inside out. I want you to understand your identity as a child. I want you to understand the power that is with you. I want it to be clear your destiny. Because when we start living like this, suddenly we have something that's contagious, something that people are looking for because we have hope. And you might be here and maybe you've come to church, but you have never made a decision like that. Before we come to the end, I want to take a minute and just pray with you so that you can experience that life-changing power. As the worship team begins to play, would you just pray with me real quick? Father, we have just rehearsed not only what happened with Jesus, but how you transformed in less than 50 days these disciples. Lord, we rehearsed how for 300 years under the most difficult situations, your church grew because the power of the resurrection altered how they lived. Father, we don't want to be people that know the facts, but we want those facts to transform our living. I'm praying right now, Lord, for those that are in this room. I pray that we will be more than people who attend church, but I pray you'll come in and change our thinking, change our heart, change our attitudes, change our direction, change our dependence. Lord, I pray there'll be an understanding that heaven is our home, that we will be settled on that right now. If that's you, you know you have a relationship with God. I just want you to pray in your own words right now. And just tell the Lord again, you want to be transformed by that resurrection. You want it to affect your thinking, your attitudes. You want his way of doing things to affect you. You want that confidence that heaven is your home. Just tell him in your own words right now. You might be here and, like we said just a minute ago, you know you don't have a relationship with God. It's definitely not the daddy-God relationship. But there's something about what we talked about today, and you'd like that resurrection power to touch and transform you. If that's you, just where you're sitting while everybody's still praying, would you just wave a hand at me, and I want to pray for you. Is there anyone here? Yeah, anybody else? Anybody else? That... The most basic concept in Scripture of how we come to God is this, Romans 10. We believe in our heart and we speak it with our mouth, confess it with our mouth. I just want to lead us as a church in a prayer. Those who raise their hands, or maybe you wanted to do it but you didn't raise your hand, if you express to God that in prayer, the Lord comes in and begins transforming you. And then you're going to want to get on that list for baptism. I want us to pray. Repeat after me. Dear Heavenly Father, we've talked about the power of the resurrection, but I want my life transformed. We've talked about being part of your family and I want to be part of your family. We've talked about power for living and the destiny for our life. 
I want that for my life. So I yield my life to you right now. Take me and transform me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.